You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 30th of January 2020 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View coming up today. Many of them just feel that the country has drifted away from them and it's like the energy has gone out of the fight. My guests Carol Walker and Joy Ledico will discuss the mood around Brexit and whether Britain has actually set itself up for success as the long divorce finally nears reality. We'll also discuss how to execute a good political interview as the outgoing Director General of the BBC says journalists too often approach the conversations as if they are speaking to liars and or crooks. And we discuss where to get and how to get a good cup of coffee and whether the world of boutique coffee has all just gone too far and whether or not it's all Australia's fault. Plus, there are a number of requests that are being banded around, maybe tax breaks, some initiatives that could practically help the edicola and not just encouraging new customers to come through. An attempt to breathe new life into Italy's fabulous newsstands. I'm Andrew Muller. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. We begin, as usual, with our news panel, which today is Carol Walker, the political analyst and former BBC correspondent, and Joy Ledico, the journalist and broadcaster. We'll start in the UK with Brexit and the customary pause for listeners to sigh again at the spectacle of a hitherto broadly sensible nation torturing itself for years in pursuit of an outcome which might, if we're all lucky, leave the country only slightly worse off than it presently is. Because a little less than 30 hours from now, the UK will actually leave the EU bound for a limbo of yet-to-be-determined length as a new relationship is fashioned. There is a hard-headed policy aspect to this, of course, but also a less tangible emotional aspect. Um, Joy, I'll ask you first, did the spectacle uh, yesterday of MEPs singing Old Lang Syne stir anything in you? How are you feeling about this? I think it left me with a sort of sense of embarrassment. I think uh, having spoken to um, friends of mine who are kind of prominent Remainers, um, many of them just feel that the country has drifted away from them and it's like the energy has gone out of the fight. The, the fight is over. The fight was lost on December the 12th. And um, and so I kind of, we're looking forward to the next year thinking, well, what are the places that we can actually make uh, a difference? Where is, the, where is the point at which we can in some way steer the future? The And some of us, I think, are just going to go off and read books, which is my plan, and some are um, going to, I think, try law over politics at the moment to try and hem in the government. But otherwise, you know, it's just a sort of sense of... um you know, is the UK our UK anymore? Uh, Carol, the thing I was struck by, especially after the referendum vote uh, in 2016, which was a surprise, I think, to most people, whether they will leave or remain, and it was something that didn't really touch me deeply because I, I remain an Australian citizen. I live here entirely legally before anybody gets any ideas, but I'm, I'm not British and therefore not European. But I was struck talking to a lot of my British friends that it hadn't occurred to them before just then that they had grown up thinking themselves as Europeans, that it, it was part of their identity. Uh, and ironically, the the Brexit thing having been largely about English identity uh, had caused them to think about their own identity in a whole new way. Did you get a sense of that, of feeling all of a sudden someone's trying to take something away from me? Well, I think that an, a lot of people didn't really wake up to that until after the referendum Result, because I think a lot of those people that you have talked about feeling as they have a a European identity 
assumed that the Brexit vote would go the other way. Mm. I think the thing that I am really struck by is that after more than three years of incredibly passionate, heated debate on all sides, when everyone has somehow been expected to have a position on one side or the other of this great divide, there is now this strange sense of of resignation that it's going to happen, that the UK is going to be outside of the European Union uh, by later on tomorrow night. Um, And almost a strange sense of anticlimax in that, of course, immediately not very much is going to change because we're Mm. going to be into this um, period when uh, very much will remain the same into the transition period. I, I think the other thing is that what this debate has done is to force people to take sides. I actually know quite a lot of people who, in the run-up to that referendum, were were quite divided, thought, well, actually, I don't like all those fat-cat Eurocrats putting <laughs> down all lots of pesky rules. But on the other hand, I know that for the sake of my business and my mates who are European, it's quite nice to have that um, multi-European um, identity. And I think what the Brexit decision did was it forced people to move to one side or the other. Well, it, it did exactly that, Joy. It did create an entire new political identity and a very fervently felt one in this country. I mean, if, if four years ago you went around identifying yourself as an ardent remainer above and beyond all else, people would have reached certain conclusions mm. about you. Uh, you were talking earlier about that sense of resignation. Carol mentioned anti-climax. Do you think, though, that that energy and that identity, remainism, if you like, is going to go anywhere? Because there is now an argument to be had about, which actually might be the more interesting one, about, OK, Brexit has happened, but we don't know yet. We don't even know what the Prime Minister thinks, what Brexit is actually going to look like. Well, we've got absolutely no idea about that. So one thing you've got to remember is that uh, people like the People's Vote and various uh, other of those second referendum campaigns now have huge mailing lists. Nothing will happen for a little while, but providing they, they keep those live and ticking over, you have the a mailing list and potentially one of the biggest um, pro-European movements, <clears throat> not inside the EU, sadly, but that that's, mm. that can always be reactivated at a later date. Um we actually don't know. This is meant to be the implementation period we're going into. The idea is that we'd already sorted out our future. We'd already got our vision for the future. And this was the time when we were going to be working out the detail. In fact, we still have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. So I, I'm the, old enough to remember when trade deals were going to be signed a matter of minutes yeah, they were after all the gonna, UK left okay. the EU. So, in fact, the next nine, the next, I think it's only till about September that it's all going to be sorted out. It's actually going to be an incredibly rocky ride. So, although we've got a kind of total lull in energy at the moment, and bear in mind we are all kind of Londoners who are therefore largely in the Remain camps anyway, or you know that's the sort of general feeling around here. That that's all going to start picking up again as we begin to realise that various things that have been promised either become impossible or we look at Boris Johnson saying we've had a huge triumph when in fact anybody, any serious analyst says actually that's a huge disaster of a trade deal. But Carol, do you think that energy though can be whipped up even by mailing lists of that size? Because the thing is that Remain 
much like Brexit, is an extremely simple binary proposition, whereas what the country now faces uh, is a much more nuanced argument and one might hope, possibly in vain, for a more sensible one. Are you going to see people getting as excited about the idea of taking to the streets in support of, I don't know, a Norway or Switzerland variety version of Brexit? The short answer is I don't think you are. I think that the overwhelming feeling... Uh, amongst many people in the country is that they just want this argument settled and they are actually tired of it. Of course, there will always be a hardcore, a very passionate former Remain campaigners who will want to try to do this and it may well be that some, at some future date they may be able to revive their mailing lists. But I think in the short term... Uh, Anyone with a strategic look at this will think that this is not the time to do that because I think that there is a huge feeling amongst people who are outside of the Westminster bubble and the political world who who are simply tired of the argument. Um, There will be an incredibly difficult process of trying to reach a trade deal with the European Union. The EU is making it very clear that if we want to do a swift trade deal, well, then we've got to stick to what they call this level playing field. So we sign up to all those EU rules and regulations. Boris Johnson, Michael Gove and so on are making it very clear that they're absolutely not going to do that, that the whole point of Brexit was that we don't have our rules dictated uh, in Brussels. So that is going to be very difficult. And the UK at the same time is saying, oh, and by the way, we're going to do um, a great trade deal with the United States. Oh, and a whole load of these other nations with whom we currently have a trade deal through the EU. And all of that's going to be wrapped up in the next few months. That is simply not going to happen. And I think that does spell huge difficulties for Boris Johnson. But I still suspect that the the confusion, the difficulties over those trading um, arrangements will not grip the country in the way that the Brexit divide and the Brexit arguments have done um, simply because we've got a government with a huge majority. Um, They will battle their way through it. Um, At the last minute, they'll cobble something together. And there is still um, only a, a, a comparatively small number of businesses who will, in the short term, be directly affected. Although, of course, the longer term economic fallout is potentially very serious. I just okay. add one small thing to that, which is just wait for the I told you so moment, because all the people who are being quiet now will all be saying, listen, <laughs> I told you so in about six months time. Joy Ladico and Carol Walker back with more from you both in just a moment. But first, Monocle's Daniel Bache has some of the other stories we're following today. Thank you, Andrew. Chinese officials have confirmed the coronavirus has now spread to every region in mainland China. Health authorities have reported a sharp rise in the number of cases in recent days, and the World Health Organization is now considering whether the virus constitutes a global health emergency. The Australian state of New South Wales has announced an independent inquiry into the ongoing bushfires. The six-month inquiry will examine the causes of the fires and how the state prepared and responded to them. It will also report on whether climate change and human factors have played a part. And finally, it's been revealed that two satellites have narrowly missed colliding over the U.S. state of Pennsylvania. The objects are traveling at a speed of 50,000 kilometers an hour, but fortunately, U.S. Space Command has said that they cross paths without incident. Those are some of the news headlines we're following now. Back to you, Andrew. 
Thank you, Daniel. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller here with Carol Walker and Joy Ladico. Well, let's look now at the craft of the political interview, a thing at which all of us here gathered have some experience. Lord Hall, the outgoing Director General of the BBC, has taken a swipe at the fashion for approaching all political interviews on the assumption that all politicians are liars, bunglers or frauds, and in search not of enlightenment but opportunities to embarrass or infuriate the interviewee. Journalists, as Lord Hall sees it, have a case to answer for contributing to a toxic political discourse. Uh, Carol, does he perhaps have half a point? Well, I think the first thing I would say is that I think our democracy absolutely requires politicians to put them up for- themselves up for scrutiny, to answer some tough questions. And in a world where all politicians are very well schooled in the art of the soundbite, you need to have an interviewer who's going to stand up to them and prevent them from simply spouting the lines to take. Where I think that Tony Hall, my former boss, does have a point, is that some of the longer form, more discussive conversational style interviews can be quite revealing about politicians and can engage the audiences in a different way. I think that in this day and age, when we've got not just one or two flagship programmes on the BBC, but a whole multiplicity of radio stations Mm. like this, of podcasts and so on, there is room for those uh, longer, more conversational, less combative interviews. But you've absolutely got to have opportunities still there to try to put politicians on the spot and make them come up with some answers and defend their politics and their behaviour. But, Joy, do journalists too often proceed from a place of assuming bad faith on the person they're talking to? Because the the, the belligerent gotcha interview has become, if, if not necessarily the default, certainly the thing that journalists and broadcasters know is going to attract the most attention. Well, I would say Lord Hall is slightly out of step out of step with the times if he thinks political interviews with bunglers, liars and crooks are out of fashion. (laughs) I would say that this was the exact point in time in which to do that. Um, I think what what has changed is that it's very difficult. Politicians really understand the media now in a way that, you know, under Brian Walden, under Robin Day, they would sit down for the hour long interview. They might get caught out by it. The questions Mm. were elegantly framed. Now, you know it's soundbited, you know it's clipped, you know you've got to get one message out, you know how to just keep repeating your message, you know, Nikki Morgan, 50,000 nurses, over and over again, um, so that that's what the viewer hears. So, in a sense, that if you regard politicians and broadcasters as the enemy, the ones who's understood the tactics of their opponent are the politicians. Uh, at this point, the media probably starts needing to change how it does those interviews. Having said that, it does do wonderfully long interviews. But the Andrew Neil's interviews are not on the presumption of lying. They're, in fact, very heavily factually True. based interviews. And those are the best interviews. Um, Carol, I, I occasionally wonder myself quite bleakly, and this, this conversation comes up a lot in reference to the BBC's, I, I guess, flagship current affairs panel show, Question Time, which does generally descend and is indeed encouraged to descend into in basically into a bear pit that if they instead spent that hour broadcasting thoughtful uh, nuanced political discussion focused on the minutiae of policy which allowed room uh, for doubt and questioning and argument would, would anybody actually watch it well i think that the great value of question time is that the questions are coming not from schooled political interviewers but from members of the public and i actually think that it's hugely valuable that you can have 
For example, a nurse or a teacher who can stand up to a politician who's trotting out a soundbite about some extra money, some extra staffing, some extra investment, saying, well, hang on, I'm a nurse and these are the problems that I'm facing. It facing. Yes, in a longer form interview, as Joy is saying, you can approach things from a, dip, from a different way. My point is that when you have... I mean, even the BBC itself has so many different programmes and platforms, radio, TV, online, um, Facebook conversations, podcasts and so on. There is room for all of these things. And I think there's there's room for some shouty arguments and there's room as well for some perhaps more reflective conversational uh, interviews as well. Just a, a final thought on this one, Joy. Isn't isn't the, the fetishisation, though, uh, and I, I think the media is quite guilty of as guilty of fetishising it as as the audiences are of the the shouty confrontational interview. Um, Does it contribute to a general lowering of the tone? I I don't know. I I speak personally. I I get quite bored by them. I don't really uh, feel like I'm learning anything from them. To be honest, I think... Well, I think... Do we want to argue against the death of deference in modern culture is the kind of broad question there. In some senses, I think, yes, the death of deference was a very good thing. Um, But I do think in the end, you don't end up with a political class that can explain what they're doing and the deeper motives behind it. Um, But I would also say there's a second stream going on while you've got these very confrontational political views in places like LBC, occasionally BBC. You have this sort of slow stream now which is podcasts Hmm. and they don't require that soundbite they are deliberately sort of slow radio and so you know let's see how those two things balance out as they both develop in political terms and if i could just say very quickly i think the bigger problem at the moment is a scenario where you've got a government with a big majority which is boycotting many of those much tougher interview style programs um but where the prime minister's happy to have his own cameraman in to film him taking questions from school children in downing street so i i realize now i've done that item all wrong i just should have talked straight over the top of both of you and uh, and we'll all interrupt you as well yeah exactly carol if that is even your real name um finally on today's news panel uh the tate museum here in london has attracted a measure of online contumely for advertising for a head of coffee the position comes with a salary of £39,500, which is, as angry people who only read the headlines have noted, more than the Tate pays some of the people who curate its actual exhibitions. The outrage was, as outrage of this sort often is, misplaced. Head of Coffee is a management position overseeing the cafes at four galleries. But it did serve as an illustration of the onrushing, insuperable hegemon of coffee, a commodity which almost no enterprise feels now unable to offer. A reminder that Monocle's excellent cafe is just around the corner from where we are broadcasting. Um, Carol, have, have you noted yourself any especially weird purveyors of coffee in your travels? Well, having just come from the most ludicrously overpriced, OK, confession here, oat milk cappuccino in a trendy coffee you, you shop around literally the everything you from get. here, um, where I was shocked at the price. Um, £4.50 for a, ca- for a cappuccino might dear mother, rest her soul, would be turning in her grave if she knew what I'd spent for a cup of coffee. (laughs) But one of the best ones I had um, was at the end of a walk uh, through some mountains in Georgia. This is the 
Georgia, um, next door to Russia, not the one in America. And we arrived at a tiny little village um, which had unmade streets and, and, and goats walking down the streets and beautiful medieval towers. And um, it wasn't the most epic of walks, but it had been three or four hours through the mountains. And um, there was a, a, a guy shouted at us, please come to my cafe, please come to my cafe. And in the garden of his house... Um, he had got his own little coffee um, cart and he made the most superb uh, cup of coffee, which was entirely unexpected and absolutely delicious and did not cost £4.50. See, at this point, I feel obliged to confess that I have witnessed uh, in the far north shore of Sydney somebody with an espresso machine on a small motorboat sailing between yachts uh, <laughs> moored while the occupants thereof took a swim. I, I did have a profound moment of thinking, yep, we will all be first against the wall when the revolution comes. Um, Joy... Is this, though, basically Australia's fault? I, I wonder if it is, because at some point in the last 10 or 15 years, Australia, my people, seem to decide that coffee is something we're really going to care about. Do you actually grow coffee beans out there, or are you importing them all? I think we're importing them all. So have, you, have you just got time on your hands or something? It, it I mean, coffee was, was all, you know, in Italian cafes, you just get your coffee on the bar, nice and quick, five minutes, off you go. Indeed. Uh, I, the, I have a lot of sympathy for that model. Yeah, walking here, I was just remembering my grandmother in Sicily, used to make a lovely bowl of milky coffee for my grandfather, which he would dip bread into before going off to the farm in the mornings. And it was just a kind of rather casual part of the, of the, of the routine. And suddenly it's all become, you know, incredibly high flown. When I was um, a kid, my father runs, ran a cafe in London and I operated the coffee machine. In fact, I used to sleep with an old Gadger coffee machine at the end of my bed with the kind of full pressure stuff. So... Uh, that I've, is a high-octane tea's made, it? was, isn't it? and I was very, very good at it, and I now feel that I have somewhat missed a trick in not staying in the barista profession, and journalism, in fact, is now the kind of cul-de-sac profession. I know, you, you, you could be making the I thick end indeed. of 40 grand a year <laughs> yes, from I the could. Tate. <laughs> Joanna Deco and Carol Walker, thank you both. In a moment, we will hear a little bit more about the importance of Italy's newsstands. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Do stay tuned. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Andrew Muller. Italy's newsstands were once a fixture of urban life, not mere retailers of the morning papers and the month's magazines, but community hubs at which the events of the day would be vigorously discussed. Sadly, their numbers have dwindled from over 36,000 in 2001 to less than half of that today. A step has been taken to remind Italians of their value, however, and joining me now to explain what is Monocle's culture editor, Chiara Ramella. Um, Chiara, first of all, what is special or different about Italian newsstands? Well, I think the different, main difference lies in the fact that Italians will probably always take a good occasion to have a good old neighbourhood chat around politics specifically. Um, I think uh, the news agent uh, is obviously a fixture of many cities, but in Italy... Um, it's often a kiosk, it's often in the middle of a square, it's often a, a focal point of a square. Um, it's not only in big cities, but in towns specifically. And, and it's often felt like the place where people would gather to discuss the events of the day. Um, so the fact that, that their numbers are decreasing, I find is, is quite a sad occurrence in terms of depriving neighbourhoods of a place where people can come together. And normally, you know, the person who do, does manage the newsagent is always a same old face that you see every day of your life and I was w watching a report about this initiative last night and 
the the edicola that took part from Rome is is managed by this man who's been kind of behind the counter for 40 years. That keeps the community together, seeing the same face every day, having a friend in, in a retailer near you. So this initiative that has taken place to remind Italians of what marvellous institutions they are, um, what did it consist of? It consisted of edicole across the country in uh, 40 cities, to be exact, uh, staying open until later than usual. Uh, some stayed open until 11pm, for example. Uh, many offered a toast um, at 9pm, because why not? Um, but mainly just kind of keeping their lights on into the evening to show in a quite a literal metaphorical sense how much they are a beacon of kind of culture and, and democracy for, for our squares and the fact that they shouldn't really go off. Does the fact, though, that an initiative like that is necessary suggest that everybody does kind of understand they're trying to sweep the tide back here, that now that we have reached that blessed state in which people can just stay home and yell at each other via their computers, they don't need to get dressed up and go into the town square to yell at each other in person? It's Obviously, it's a sad state of affairs, but I think what's also very important to consider in this whole edicola discussion is that um, the edicola aren't... Uh, surviving because newspapers in print are selling less than they used to. But the more edicola die, the more the publishing industry will suffer as well, Mm. because obviously without an appropriate newsstand and without something that entices new readers into publishing, then the overall sales numbers will definitely decrease as well. So it's in the publisher's interests as well to try and help the edicula through the situation because they kind of support each other in this kind of microcosm of... of, of, um, of publishing. So one of the things that was also organised was a petition um, to try and request kind of public funding for, for the edicula. There are a number of requests that are being banded around, maybe tax breaks, some initiatives that could like practically help the edicula and not just encouraging new customers to come through. Do you have a favourite edicole of your own that you would like to direct our listeners to? <laughs> well, obviously, I'm personally attached to the edicola that I used to go to as a child in Turin. It's on Via Michele Lissona, uh, close to my home. It's nothing special. And in fact, it's not even a kiosk, which might kind of deter some people. But it's <laughs> it's it's beautiful and all the same. Um, they used to uh, st- stock a lot of music magazines, um, but they'd always just have the one copy of Rumore, which was my favourite music magazine, and I'd just get the one for the month, every month. And it was just a lovely tradition, and I'm sad that I don't buy Rumore anymore. Was that part of the appeal of it as well, that the proprietors knew the, knew the local community and knew which magazines to hold for which people? Of course. I mean, it's, it's like the bar, it's like the cafe... Um, they they already know what paper you're going to pick up in the morning. You know, you, you're either going to be a Repubblica reader or a Stampa reader or a Corriere della Sera reader and you walk through the door and they've already got your paper ready for you because they know what you read and you always get the same every day. So it's the usual for the customer. So our final message to our listeners, wherever they are in the world, go out to your local newsstand, buy something from it and perhaps argue with one of the other customers. Um, don't push it too far, though. You never quite know who you're dealing with. That was Chiara Ramella, and that is all for today's show. Monocle's House View was produced by Daniel Bache. Our studio managers were Steph Chongu and Christy Evans. Coming up at 2000, a brand new edition of The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck. Monocle's House View returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening. 